Uh, if you have a Bible, as you get back to your seats, we'll be in 1 Corinthians. Uh, once again, uh, we'll, be, we'll read at the end of chapter 6 uh, to set us up for chapter 7. We uh, set out last week to uh, talk about chapter 7. What it really turned into was just an introduction uh, about why Paul is talking about a subject that we as Christians often hear talked about, but we don't always go to the Word and hear how the Bible articulates it and unpacks it for us. So I think, though, to get us started, I think that if, if you were to ask most Christians uh, that at least, at least have a general knowledge of the Bible, if you were to ask most Christians what the theme of 1 Corinthians is, uh, uh, you would get a, a response that has something to do with the body of Christ. And that's why we've titled this study in this series, His Body, uh, because we, the church, are his body. Before we begin this study, even if you have never really done a, a deep dive into 1 Corinthians, I think you probably have some awareness that this book, it has to do with our placement within, uh, our association with, and our identification as the body of Christ. So even if you've never read 1 Corinthians or never studied 1 Corinthians, you probably have heard about it or know about it in the context of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, really leans into our identification as the body of Christ. 20 years ago, the a popular Casting Crown song, I think, made that something that even people that never really read the Bible uh, were aware of, um, as uh, the title of that song and the chorus of that song uh, is, is, we are the body of Christ. And, and that is what we will find later on in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, that very statement that we are, you are, the body of Christ. But as we've discovered, that message is not just confined to one chapter, but the entire book is building up and is really under that overarching theme. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and teaching them about what it means to be in Christ, how we are all in him individually, but also as a collective, as a community, there is something special about this gathering that we call the local church. And the message so far in 1 Corinthians has been the church is the earthly representation of Christ. Now, of course, he was on earth for, th for 30 years in ministry, and then he ascended to heaven after his resurrection. But when he ascended to heaven, he left the church in his stead, and he, he, he gave the church the designation that we are the body of Christ. We are in him individually. So when you are a Christian, when you're saved, you are in him. So I'm, you're not saved because of me. I'm not saved because of you. I, if I fall away or if I turn away, that doesn't affect you. We are saved individually. We are in Christ individually. But, 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 there is something special and there's something that cannot really be uh, uh, described unless you experience it. He is in us collectively. He made that statement where two or three gather in my name. I am with them. I am in their presence in a way that is greater than what you would experience on your own. As a unit, as a group, as a community, the power and presence of Jesus is manifested in a unique and supernatural way in that we are enabled to do the business of God that we could not do on our own, that we will not be able to do on our own. Uh, Christ doesn't just dwell within us. He is in our hearts, but with the church, he works through us and he spreads through us and he spreads by us. So we've learned a lot about the implications of this 
so far, particularly how our witness is so crucial. Our representation is vital in our living up to our new identity. And we've spent weeks talking about this now. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, Paul has gotten to the subject of our personal transformation out of sin and how our reaction to sin, our recovery from sin, our resistance to temptation of sin all reflects the work that God has done in us and God continues to do in us. And that's so crucial if we're going to be a light to the world. Uh, As we come together, as our testimony uh, is uh, put on display, uh, by volume, our stories attest more and more. And as we come together and as we all live the way we should live and all we all experience God's grace as we should, um, there is louder evidence of what salvation can do and what sanctification can do can do. So I would say that uh, this is especially true for Corinth, but, but really it, it's as true for us as it was for them. Uh, the first century uh, church has so much in common with the 21st century church and vice versa. Uh, but to this day, uh, all the, over the last 2,000 years, our testimony and our witness is so important when it comes to our impact and impression on the world. In a world that is fully immersed in sin, And I don't have to go into full detail about that. We all are aware of how immersed into sin our world is. And we'll talk more about that. We spent a whole week talking about it, a whole night talking about it last week. Uh, But in a world that is impacted by sin on every side, at every angle, we must be clear and consistent with our light. Do you agree with me on that? That in a world that is so knee-deep, waist-deep, torso-deep in sin, right? Neck-deep, however you want to go. In a world that is so deep in sin... It is so crucial that our light is clear and consistent. Now, we we know how to shine bright on Sundays, but the consistency is important, right? Not just on Sundays, but the lighthouse that is shining out to the boats at the sea, it doesn't just shine one day a week, does it? It shines every single night because there's always a ship needing to see where it can find safe harbor. And that is what the purpose of the church is, to shine that light. Now, in chapter 6... Over our recent studies, we've heard Paul lean hard into this body of Christ terminology. Not just uh, as a belonging sense, as a gathering, but how each of our bodies, our physical bodies, uh, what we do with them and what we do in them and how we conduct our lives, that our bodies are the greatest platform from which we can communicate the gospel. That what we do with our bodies, what we bring into our bodies, and what we allow to be done with our bodies, our bodies are an opportunity to preach the gospel. Uh, now, of course, uh, because not only are we the body of Christ, but each of our bodies belong to Jesus. And what we do in our bodies and what we do with our bodies should reflect that belonging. Specifically, what we do in our bodies and with our bodies should reflect his resurrection's impression on us and we should leave a resurrection impact on our world. And and, and what did Paul talk about in chapter 6? That Jesus' body was buried and it was raised again. And Paul says, each of you in your flesh, your bodies have experienced his resurrection and how your bodies live, how you conduct your life in and with your body should reflect that you have a new life. You have a new spirit. You have been changed in your body. We are the body of Christ collectively, but that applies to us individually as well. And how we conduct our lives in our bodies reflects whether or not we are truly members of the body of 
Christ. So Paul was talking to Corinth about the perversion in their world. And we talked about that perversion last week and how it was not and it is not dissimilar to the perversion in our world. Uh, and he specifically, he talked about the immorality and the sexual breakdown or the breakdown in sexuality that they were experiencing, that they were um, observing. Uh, and, and we talked about this, how there were people um, from all different types of that breakdown, broken marriages, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, gender dysphoria, which is transgender, the idea that I don't, I disagree with the gender that I was born into or that I was assigned at birth, uh, that there were people that were involved in incest. And literally there's an example of that in chapter five, a polygamy. And if you want to know about the, the examples of polygamy, they're all over the Bible. Even the Hebrew people were you know, careless about that sort of thing. So there are all sorts of examples of the breakdown from God's design and God's perfect will, God's intent for sexuality and morality. And all of these that they observed and that they had been a part of at Corinth in the past, all of those reflected the breakdown of God's intent and God's design. And Paul says to the people at Corinth, as God has saved many of you out of these and, and healed you from these and transformed you from these, so there are many in the world that are still in these lifestyles and still affected by these, uh, by these situations. And it's so important that you now model what life can be like healed and restored from, these bro- bro- from this breakdown of sexuality in morality. Uh, it's not enough, Paul says, to be delivered from perversion, but we must live with and be determined with purpose to glorify God with our bodies. So that's why Jesus would not budge. We talked about this last week, but this is why Jesus would not budge when he was pressed about sexuality. That's why Jesus said it'd be better that you lose a limb, right, if, if, you, if, it, if it caused you to sin. Poke your eye out if it causes you to sin. That's why Jesus, though it may have offended people, he didn't mince his word when he talked about broken marriages and things that were not according to God's will because he wanted people to realize that God had a perfect plan that we all fall short of that we all have missed the mark on. And he wanted to set that standard up so high that we would aspire to reach and that we would aspire to live according to. If Jesus would have downplayed God's original will and how far we've fallen from it, uh, when it comes to sexuality and morality, it wouldn't have given proper import to living to that standard. When it comes to how God wills for men and women to live individually and most importantly in relation to one another. So Paul, like Jesus, has a strong word for the church in this subject matter. And he ends chapter six like this in verse 18 through 20. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So Paul tells us that there's something, there's something more on the line when it comes to sexuality and morality because we are, we are messing with God's design, God's intent, God's image that we bear or we are meant to bear. And then he asked this question that they didn't know the answer to or they weren't aware of the answer to. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And do you not know that you are not your own? Do you not know that your body is directly reflecting the image of God? Do you not know that what you do with your body and who you, you know, join yourself to in your body, do you not know that directly impacts your soul? 
do you not know? And, and the Corinthians would say, well, well, no, we didn't know. And, and, and Paul says, such for some of you. You've come from broken homes. You've been involved in adultery and fornication. You've been involved in these perverse lifestyles. Some of you uh, still are, you know, bearing the implications of incest and polygamy and, you know, going about in a way that wasn't according to God's design. Such were some of you, but you've been washed and you've been delivered. He says in verse 20, for you were bought at a price. Isn't that beautiful that God buys us and he bought us as we are? The classic example in the Bible is, is the story of Hosea and Gomar. Gomar, who Hosea uh, bought out of a, a, a prostitution, and yet she continued to leave him and go back into prostitution because she didn't realize there was a way for her to live outside of that, yet he continued to buy her back and love her anyway. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are or belong to God. So here's what Paul's charged to the, to the Christians at Corinth are, as they have been saved out of this lifestyle. Not only are they to flee sin, but they are to pursue righteousness. Not only are they to flee, to get out of the sin, but now they are to pursue God's right and perfect way. God's intent from the beginning. So I think sometimes we think that salvation is just about being removed from sin. I think a lot of times we hear about salvation and we think, well, it's just about being forgiven. And of course it is about forgiveness, but it's more than just being removed from sin. It's being placed into righteousness. Paul says this in Romans 5, 17, follow me. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus. Now Paul's explaining how salvation works, how we are sinners because of Adam, we are saved because of Jesus. Adam brought sin, Jesus brings us out of sin. But what does he say there? That because of Adam's sin, we are all born into sin and we do a really good job at sinning. But because of Jesus has salvation in his grace, we not only are delivered from sin, but we get the opportunity to reign in life as in have abundant life, as in be delivered from sin and live in righteousness. Do you, do you see the difference? It's not just about being forgiven. There's a deliverance, there's a transformation. He says this in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. That means you're forgiven. And life, that means you are raised to something new, to something better, to something different. Righteousness is a lifestyle. So we don't just glorify God by being saved, but we glorify God by being sanctified. That's that transformation process. And again, this is specifically in what Paul is going to do in this next chapter. It's specifically talk about how we live our lives as men and women, restored to God's image, design, and intent in our sexuality and morality. Now, we closed around this conversation last week, and I want to pick back up as we get into chapter 7. Paul is going to talk about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, sexuality and morality in chapter 7. Because he's explained to us God is using the church to recenter the world 
one person at a time, one family at a time. So Paul starts at ground zero with the Corinthians. He is going to lay a foundation of what it looks like to be godly men and godly women in their marriages, in their relationships, and even in cases of being widowed or being divorced or as they are single. Paul is going to go through what you, would, you could call sexuality 101 because none of these people truly understood how sexuality was such a deeper aspect of their lives and reflected their connection to God. And what he does is he says to all of us, our moral compass must be set by the one who made us, the one who designed us and wired us. And you know what this passage tells me? That every one of us has been and will be tempted to take an alternative route with our body when it comes to sexuality and morals. Satan has terrorized the family unit from the beginning. Satan's playground and his target has never been boardrooms or throne rooms. It's always been living rooms and bedrooms. You hear me? Satan has never targeted throne rooms or boardrooms because that's not how he destroys the world. He destroys the world by destroying the family. He targets living rooms and bedrooms. And don't think that yours is off his list. He has every one of us. And whether you are married of decades, whether you're remarried, widowed, single, regardless of where you are at in your life, from, from, from young adulthood to as old as you can be, Satan targets our hearts in this area. He has always done this. And you can read the Old Testament, how there are so many examples of moral and sexual abuse and perversion, how there is examples of marital and familial neglect and misconduct, and that's how he wore Israel down to the shell that it was at the end of the Old Testament. Through fornication, mentally or physically, uh, whether breaking up marriages, uh, adultery, or permanently through separation, whether it was through rebellion against God's design, alternative orientations, Satan has, there's a clear track record of what he has done in the world, and you can read about it in the Old Testament, through Israel, much less the rest of the world. Christ has saved us and shows us that there is one plan for our lives, and I know None of us, whether mentally or physically, none of us are pure as God would have us to be. But Jesus has made it clear there is one desire and design for, God, for God's people, for men and women, that we are designed for one partner that we might would glorify God with. And of course, not everyone's story is that ideal. Not everyone's story is, that, is, is under and in that circumstances. Yet we strive to live the best we can based on where we realize what God's will is for us and what God's will is for us going forward. And that's what chapter seven focuses on. Paul does not, and, 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 and hear this clearly, he does not spend this chapter condemning all the people who are sinning morally. He does not spend this chapter talking about the problems in the world as we might would point to them. He spends this chapter talking about how the church might lead a sexual revolution and shine the brightest light of purity and morality and be a people passionate about God's design for morals and for ethics. And he preaches what it, will, what it should look like. Are there some messed up things in the world? Yes, but the best way to preach the message is by modeling the right and only way for the world. So we're, gonna go, we're not going to go verse by verse through chapter 7 because I think it's something that you and your spouse or you, maybe a group of friends that are in your same situation or same you know, lifestyle, um, point of life, 
you and your spouse should sit down and go through this chapter together. Whether you are married, single, divorced, widowed, get with a like-minded group of people and break this chapter down. And we'll show you, I'll show you which section that you should focus on. But let me break it down and summarize this chapter into three sections. We'll look at the first one. Chapter seven, one through five is written to married men and women. But this one I think applies to all of us. We'll get to that. And the goal of the, the, the theme of, chapter, of these five verses is that we lose authority over our own body when we say I do to Jesus and to our spouse. So he says, married men and women, you're commanded to see your body as belonging to God and each other. And thus you are commanded to live a life of purity for the sake of God and the sake of your spouse. In verse number four, he says, the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. As God treats and values us and is good to us as the one who we belong to, we are held to that same level of accountability and are held to that same standard in regards to our spouse and how we treat each other. This does not give someone the right to mistreat someone or abuse someone, but rather says we are held to a sacred level of responsibility to love and care for and pour themselves into one another. You know what made Israel incompetent as an example to the world for God's standard? They could not condemn sexual immorality because their marriages were so fractured, their homes were so broken. And Paul wants the church to be different. And the way we begin to be different is, look at verse number three. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, what I'm about to say is probably not the romance you were looking for, but it's the romance that we need. Attraction is a feeling. Affection is a choice. You may have gotten married or into a relationship out of attraction. That's how it works usually. But you don't stay in one because of attraction. Listen, magnets, magnets have a propensity to wear off and not always have as a strong polarity as they did when they were manufactured. Eventually, magnets lose some of that polarity because of wear and tear. Some of y'all may think you've aged out of this kind of talk, but, but I really think there's a spiritual application that we'll get into When the feeling is being challenged by outside factors or forces, the necessity of choice remains. Do you hear me on that? Paul says, render affection. Not as in you always feel attracted to somebody, but the responsibility on a godly man toward their wife and a godly wife toward their husband is not, well, if you feel like it, give it to them or show them that affection or show them that adoration or show them that you are living for them and for God. The, the command is not, well, it's based on how you feel. The command is choose to show them the affection they are due. When we stand before God one day, saying that the feeling wore off is not going to cut it, right? Verse 3 says, married men and married women, we are under a divine obligation and covenant to look at our partners and love them, not because we feel like it, but because we choose to. 
Now, maybe that saps the romance out based on how some would understand it, but I don't think it does at all because affection, by very definition, benefits the heart, not just the mind. But the point is this. We may never receive the intended blessing of affection that God built in. God gave us that want for. We will never receive the benefit or the intended blessing of affection if we fail to render it because we just don't feel like it. Listen, I think the same thing is true for our relationship with Jesus, don't you? You don't always feel like loving God. Sometimes you wake up some mornings and you think, well, God hasn't been as good to me as he promised, or maybe I did this thing and God didn't do the thing that I thought he was gonna do, and and the devil wears on us and life wears on us and circumstances wear on us. We don't always feel like loving God. There's not always that spiritual attraction, if you will. But, but let me tell you the good news. God always feels like loving you. But even if he didn't, he still would. Think about this. In our sin, God categorically cannot look at us. But in Christ, he cannot and does not take his eyes off us. Think about that. In our sin, based on the Old Testament, God should not be able to look at any of us. But according to the New Testament, God never takes his eyes off us. Do you get that? He chooses to love you, even when he has plenty of reasons not to. And think about it even more. He put Jesus on the cross by choice so that your sin would not be in between him and you anymore. How motivated was he by love to always have a relationship with you? He put his own son on the cross to remove that barrier. His holiness couldn't look at our sin, but his holiness could not allow us, could not, could not allow sin to stay in between us anymore. So what did he do? He made a choice to fix the problem. He sees us through Jesus. He found a way to love us anyway. You know what the commandment is to you and me? And this isn't just for marriage. This is for relationships of all across the gamut, but especially for marriages. Find a way to love anyways, because guess what? God found a way. God made a way. The ver- verse three does not say, well, if you feel like it, show them the love that they are due. Verse three says, you choose to love them whether you feel like it or not. You know what this tells me? That if we started looking at people through Jesus, love would be easy. Right? I mean, this isn't just home. This isn't just family. This is life, isn't it? If we choose to love, look at people through Jesus, love would be easy. You might even say love would be required. Wouldn't it? I want to show you Hebrews 12, and I'm showing you the NIV version because it, it, it translates the Greek, and I, the Greek phrase, I think, in a better way than normal. Hebrews 12 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And the Greek there is looking at Jesus, but not just glancing, but it means focusing on him. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the throne of God. You know what the joy was for him? You and me. Do you get that? The joy before him that he endured the cross through for was to know you and I in a relationship. 
Do you know what God's word to you and me is as married people, as family people, as people? Fix our eyes on Jesus and fix our eyes on them. And when the devil says, oh, you don't, you don't, they don't deserve that or you shouldn't, you don't have to keep, you don't have to keep looking at them, look away. You know there's something greater than a feeling driving you. When it comes to serving God, the feeling isn't always going to be there. You must render him your affection because you know there's no one else that loves you like he does and has for you what he has for you. And listen, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not giving people counsel like, some, like, like one would. But a lot of people allow how they feel to keep them from coming to God. But you don't just worship God when the sun is shining. You worship God when the rain is pouring, when the sky is falling. Because the promise is this, whether the light turns on around you, the light will come on within you. And I think the, th- the same thing is true for your relationships. Now, is this saying that you love somebody who's abusing you or mistreating you? No, that's not the message. The message here is to both husbands and wives, to both individuals. You love the other. Render them the affection and love that they deserve. That is a choice you make. It is not a feeling you have. Because most days you won't feel like it. But every day you can choose to. The advice for your relationship with loved ones and with God, render unto them the affection even when the attraction may not be there, when the feeling may be less than you'd like it to be. I am, to, I am to consider my wife before myself. I am also to consider everyone before myself. The Bible says I should treat everyone superior than I would treat myself because that's what Jesus teaches me to do. And if it doesn't start at the home, it won't go anywhere else. We'll go on to the next section. This is a smaller section, but I think it's pertinent to our congregation. Seven, six through nine is to unmarried, divorced, or widowed people. And the message from Paul is that we pursue God's design for our lives and make sure the previous pain and impurity is healed before yoking yourself to another. Paul's word in this next section is, it's not wrong to remarry. It's not wrong if you are to... to, to uh, come into another relationship if you've come out of one but the message is that don't run to another person thinking that they're going to fill the hole in your heart because the hole in your heart is not from them it's from God this echoes what we've talked about but the message here is be sure that you enter a relationship you realize there are other that that are relationships uh, you realize what relationships are in the first place a reflection of your relationship with God Our earthly relationships are shadows of our heavenly relationship. The way you treat your spouse and the way you react to your spouse, the way that you treat another person that you are deeply uh, in love with or in a relationship with, that reflects the way you communicate with God, the way you relate to God. If you aren't right with God, your relationship with others will not be right and they will reflect that. If you realize this when you're married, it might be hard to undo the damage you've done because of your ill standing with God. So by all means, address the most important area first. He says in verse 9, and we've probably all heard this verse quoted and without context before, as he's saying, hey, I wish everybody would stay single like me because I'm more devoted to God because of it. But he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn. And that doesn't mean burn in hell. That means burn with passion, just to be clear. He's saying that a lot of people feel like that there is a, the greatest desire that they have is to be with someone else. A lot of people think that the only thing that's going to make them happy is somebody else fulfilling them and filling that hole and meeting that need. 
God gave you that desire for relationships. He gave you that desire for marriage. That's from him by all means. That's not wrong. But I think what he's wanting us to understand is this, that greater than the passion in our flesh is the one in our soul for a relationship with God. We were all teenagers once, young adults, and you know what it's like to deal with hormones. You know what it's like to deal with that, that, that irrational thought process in your head that thinks a person's going to fill your need and fix your problem. Now, of course, some people act like teenagers long into their adulthood, so let's not just put it all on the young people. Uh, but the point is, greater than the passion and lust and emotional angst in the flesh is a burning desire to know God and walk with God. Because our relationships and our homes will never be right unless our hearts are right and burn first for God. Let the passion to glorify him drive you to be the best husband, wife, friend, partner you can be because it's all for him in eternity. And, and Paul's talking about two different kind of fires here. That in our flesh, there's this wildfire that thinks that we need somebody else to feel that need and to fulfill us personally but there's a holy fire that burns in our souls that our relationships are meant to point to and meant to be fueled by and if the holy fire is what we're tending to first and what we're flaming first our relationships will be as they should be now this isn't what most people think about and it's not what most Christians think about because we separate these two categories we separate these two conversations but know that God started the first marriage as a direct reflection of his own love meant to reflect love between one another. Jesus even said the church is portrayed through a husband and wife loving each other and giving their lives for each other. The last section I would encourage you to read is verses 10 through 16. This is to couples that are unequally yoked. Now, they may not apply to anybody here. You may have been in one of these relationships in the past, and you may know people that are in these kinds of relationships. But this addresses people who, upon their salvation, or at some point in their marriage, realize they are unequally yoked, as in they are with, right with God, but their partner isn't. God commands us in these verses that if you are safe and wanted and valued, you are to remain faithful and committed to the salvation. To the, for the purpose of the salvation of your spouse. Now, very clearly, verse 15 makes it, makes it clear, if the unbeliever departs, and the, the Greek word in departs can also mean that he abandons you or that he puts you in a vulnerable place. So not only if you are left, but also if you are left emotionally or abandoned emotionally or if you are abused. By no means is God saying stay in a relationship if you are being hurt or if you are being mistreated or if you are being abused. If you are abandoned physically or emotionally or uh, you are not enslaved, you are, in a, you are free to leave. But if you are in a peaceful, healthy relationship, prioritize putting God's moral compass at the center of your marriage and seek, the soul, seek their soul's best. It's not ideal, but again, this is the real world. This, you might would say, well, uh, you shouldn't marry someone that isn't saved. Well, that's the truth, right? But plenty of people end up in relationships that maybe they should not have gotten into without previous consideration. Yet when they're in those relationships, what does Paul say in verse 16? For how do you know, O wife or husband, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife or that God will save them through you? 
Plenty of relationships are not where they should be. If you realize it first, don't give up on the other. Pray for them. And you know what I think this, this means? That, that not just if one person is saved and the other person is lost, but if you are in a relationship where you feel like you're more committed than they are to God and, or they're more committed than you are to God, if you're in a relationship like that, don't give up on the other person. Love them as the scripture has commanded you to love them. Pour your heart out for them and trust that God will change them as he has changed you. Now, after these sections, Paul addresses all of us together. And I want to read these verses together as we close, verse 17 through 24. But as God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised, as then you can't change that. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now he uses that physical example to talk about the relationships that people are in. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while he is a slave is the Lord's freedom Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So Paul's word to us is, wherever you realize that there's a standard you're held to, wherever you realize that you belong to God and that your relationships reflect that and should honor that, wherever you realize, maximize prioritize maximizing that place in your life for God's glory and making sure that you get it right where you are and the condition you're in and the place you're at and don't move forward with your life until you first realize I'm called to serve God and honor God and glorify God with my body. Now, most of us, we care about our earthly lives first and we'll get to our spiritual lives down the road. But Paul says, don't get the cart before the horse is essentially his message. Now, we've searched the scriptures and we know how God's design and plan for morality and sexual purity is so important. And we are accountable and we are obligated to pursue his design from where we are right now. Because that's where we've been called. If we are in sin, Jesus shows us the way out. If we are married or single, Jesus shows us the way forward. Wherever we are and wherever we hear this, remain there with God as in come to God, allow him to heal you, deliver you, and guide you forward. When it comes to sexuality and morality, no other matter of concern affects our soul as much. So again, hear God's advice on this. If it's painful, because while his ideal may seem impossible, he understands our real life situation. He loves us anyway. And Jesus died to show us that we can all be saved, forgiven, delivered, and used where we are. Married, widowed, single, divorced, planning to get married. Come, wherever you are in your moral, sexual walk, with God, you can be used to glorify God, being healed from the past, being used in your present, being prepared for the future. Believe me, there are plenty of people like you that do not realize God is deeply involved with this part of their life. And they need you to show them and they need you to represent the Lord for them. We've seen how all of it's anchored in our relationship with him and ultimately an overflow of where we are with him. If our hearts burn for God, they will be best for others and we will shine bright in our world. 
I think it is more relevant than ever because our world is a lot like the first century, very perverse, very twisted. If we get our earthly relationships right and conduct them from the overflow of our heart for God, we can lead people into a relationship with our heavenly father. And God says that you and I must be the moral authority in a deeply perverse world. And we should bear moral accountability as devoted and pure a church to God. We cannot wring our hands over all that's wrong in the world if we won't first admit our own brokenness and strive to follow God's design for our relationships. Whether we're married, divorced, remarried, widowed, single, we must seek God's plan for where we are. We cannot separate sexuality and morality from our relationship with God because one reflects the other and one affects the other. So the message is pretty clear. Pursue God, be passionate for him and love from there. Love the other person, love other people from that place. Begin relationships, end relationships, pursue relationships from that place. I think God has said something to all of us tonight. He's given us healing. He's given us guidance. If we'll just receive it and we'll just follow it, we can be an example in our world. This matters how we share our past, how we manage our present, how we take steps into the future because you and I are all vulnerable in this area. And our testimony carries so much power in this area. And the place that we hear this, the place that we are called at, we are accountable to leverage our morality for the glory of God. So maybe you've got something in your past that you've never allowed God to heal. A broken marriage, a broken relationship, abuse, misconduct, God forbid, but maybe it's there and you've never let God heal you from that. And you've never let God use that to point to him. You've never let God fill that void that was left by somebody else. Maybe you are looking at a husband or a wife that you feel like should be for you what only God will ever be for you. Maybe you are not choosing to love your spouse the way God says you should. Maybe you are at a place where you are trying to find God's will for you in this area and you always come up wanting because you've never let him first be to you what only he can be for you. So, May our hearts burn passionately for the Lord. That fire will spread into and refine our relationships and that light will burn bright in our world. Listen, there's a whole lot of advice going out into the world about this subject. Only Christians, only God's people have the light that can lead the way. I don't say that to make you and I arrogant. We've learned tonight, we need God's help in this area. But if we get this right, the light will burn bright. And people, married, divorced, widowed, regardless of where they're at, single, remarried, you all can bear that light to somebody that's just like you, that's been through something like you, but they've never been healed. They've never been restored. They've never found God's way. You can show it to them. You can lead them in the way that God has for them. And you can show them how God's helped you. That's the most powerful witness you have as a man, as a woman in this world. Thanks for being here tonight, church, for a little bit of a deeper conversation about our personal lives, but nonetheless, our personal testimony for God's glory. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for being to us a light and help us to see that our hearts burn for you most of all. Lord, use us and guide us that we might would show the way to a world that needs to be healed and restored from all sorts of perverse 
uh, lifestyles and situations. Lord, I pray that you might would make a difference through us and shine a light through us that we might could make a difference. God, be with each and every one of us as we leave here. Let us look and fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We ask this in his name. Amen.